Thank you, Brother Dave. Thank you for that good singing. Thank you for the encouragement of those young children remembering, hiding God's Word in their hearts and speaking God's Word and getting used to speaking it in public like all of us need to be be uh, free and willing to do, I trust. We want to come back to our studies in 1 Corinthians and come now to chapter 8. We're going to move to chapter 8. We were up to chapter 3, and, and I'm not skipping chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 because they're not important, but because I, I felt like um, in a six-part series that we have opportunity to do, in, in these uh, particular studies on this occasion, oftentimes the, uh, chapter 5 and 6 are, uh, are taught separately in sort of a topical way. And so you've probably had a lot of teaching on chapter 5 and 6 and 7 uh, before. And so I want to move into chapter 8 because this is an area that is so important, so important in our fellowship in the Lord. Let's just remind ourselves of what we've seen so far, right? We're trying to move through the epistle of 1 Corinthians and see church distinctives as they're revealed exegetically from the book, not in a topical sort of a fashion, but in an exegetical fashion as they, the mind of God unfolds itself in the mind of the Apostle Paul. This is the order we see. And remember, he begins in chapter 1. We looked at that last week. The fact that we're set apart for God. We're set apart for God. That's what it means to be saved. To be set apart and to be His personal possession even. He uses those words in chapter 6 near the end of the chapter. Remember that we've been bought with His blood and we belong to Him. And that's a great encouragement to us. We know who we are now. We have a new identity. Whatever, our, whatever characterized our identity before, whether it was in terms of our national heritage or our family heritage or our educational heritage or whatever it was, our primary identity is who we are in Christ. God has put us into the fellowship of His Son, a partnership in this great work that God's doing in the world. He's building His church, Matthew 16, 18. We looked at that. And He's invited us to participate with Him in this great work. It's a partnership. It's a koinonia. It's a fellowship with His Son. And so this whole area of disciple-making, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we looked at that. Be making disciples of all nations. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, passing on to faithful men that they might pass it on to others. We have a responsibility then. We have a charge from God. And it's a great privilege. So we've seen we're set apart for God. And we saw also in the second half of chapter 1 that our sufficiency for this great task is in Christ alone. He is the power of God and He is the wisdom of God. And so He is sufficient. We don't need to put any other individual, any man certainly, in that place. And He, of course, the Apostle Paul talks about in chapter 1 these divisions, these, these uh, schisms that are happening in the church in Corinth and have happened historically throughout the history of the church to our dismay. Unfortunately. And so we don't want to be like that. We want to keep Christ the center and realize that all the power and wisdom we need comes by Him and through Him and through His Word. 
Our sufficiency is in Him. And then we looked at, I think it was Tuesday night, at the Anderson's home, the area of service and rewards in 1 Corinthians 3. You remember we saw then... No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. That was Wednesday night. In chapter 2, we saw that the, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the spiritual enlightenment. And we, we, I think we titled it Spirit-Assisted Growth. That God, once He's called us into this fellowship, He wants us to continue to grow as Christians. That is the normal Christian life, to be growing. And remember we saw with these Corinthians that they themselves, because of carnality, had stunted their own growth. Is it possible for Christians to stunt, to suppress their own growth, to allow impediments to that growth to come in? Yeah, happens all the time. Part of one of the great values of pastoral, true pastoral ministry is to help one another with this because we get to know each other and we get to know where our vulnerabilities are and we can help one another, encourage one another. Hey, I see that you know it looks like you're getting away from the Lord. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? And maybe have some scriptures to show them from the Word of God to help keep one another sharp on the edge. Always ready for the work the Master has called us to do. And we realize our dependence is on the Holy Spirit, but God has given us His Spirit, you see. And in His Spirit, we saw in chapter 2, that great verse in verse 9, Eye hath not seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't even entered in the heart of man what God has prepared for... Those who love Him. No philosophical system, no religious system has ever thought of this. What God has revealed, He's revealed Him, but where? In His Scriptures. Paul says, but unto us, believers, it's been revealed by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we begin to enter into, to know the deep things of God. What an expression. Do you appreciate the deep things of God? Someone has said in some, some views of the church that it's, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Well, that's not deep, is it? That's shallow. How some, some Christians are, are like little children playing with the little bucket and their little paddle on the, on the shoreline and they think everything there is to life is right there in that little ankle deep water and there's this deep ocean that spans out in front of them, but they're not aware of it. But those of us who are growing as Christians, spending time in the Word of God regularly, we begin to see there is a vast deep ocean of truth out there and God wants us to enter in to appreciate it because that's who we're about now. That's our new identity, you see. And then I think it was Wednesday night that we looked at service and rewards in chapter 3 and the great privilege it is that, that as we serve the Lord, the Bible says we're workers together with God. God's fellow workers. What a statement. We might think, yeah, that might be the angels. Well, the angels are too. They're ministers, flames of fire, right? But we believers are God's fellow workers. That puts everything in a different perspective, doesn't it? You see how He's taken us from that low position we were before and brought us way up here. God has done that by the grace of God. 
And so now we want to see this morning that we want to be in chapter 8 sensitive to edify one another. Or you could word it sensitive to build up one another. And what he begins, the topic he begins here in chapter 8 is the whole idea of Christian liberty and how that liberty must be restrained, if you will, by love. Okay? We have certain rights as Christian, right? But we don't live just for our rights. We don't live selfishly just for ourselves. We realize we've been put into a body, a community, and we have responsibilities for all in the community, and we want to be sensitive to all. We want to be sensitive in what words we use with one another because we want to be careful never to offend. We do offend. And God tells us what we need to do when we offend one another, right? But we want to learn not to. <laughs> My grandmother used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Button it up. And I'm still learning that at almost 57. I don't know about you. You know, it's so easy to rush to say something and to say something maybe in a joking way that really has a barb in a sharp part of it. She also used to say, more truth is said in jest than this world ever dreams of. She was Irish, so you know how that goes. They had all kinds of expressions. But think of it. More truth is said in jest than this world ever dreams of. In other words, we try to get a barb in, but we do it in a joke so we think we can get away with it. It's a subtle way of criticizing or putting down someone else. And Paul says here in chapter 8, now chapter 8, he, he begins verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. And what he's going to begin here, remember that he's, he started in chapter 7, verse, verse 1, with addressing things about the things you wrote to me. The first one was singleness and marriage. Great, important truth and perspective on singleness and marriage in chapter 7. Way too much ignored in our world today. But I think you hear that a lot on certain conferences that deal with those issues. So I figured we'd move to chapter 8. In chapter 8, he'll continue with this thought all the way through chapter 11. So chapter 11, the teachings with regard to the Lord's Supper... And how we gather together as a church to remember the Lord is in a context. And that's an exegetical context, right? You can't just pull it out by itself. It fits in with chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. They flow together. And it helps us see the richness of it when we see that. Chapter 12, he'll begin a new topic, right? He'll talk about spiritual gifts. And he'll deal with that in chapter 12, 13, and 14. And then chapter 15, he'll come back to the essence of the gospel and the whole truth of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And so chapter 15 will help clarify that whole preterist idea that says, well, the resurrection is just the spiritual side of it. No, he teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a bodily resurrection. And that hasn't happened yet because we're still in these old bodies. The preterist theory is wrong. It's unbiblical, see. 
But here in chapter 8, he deals with matters of conscience. Now, we looked at this, I think, about six years ago in 2006 when we looked at Romans 14 and 15, which is a parallel to 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 in these matters of conscience. What about those areas of conscience or areas of liberty where I feel the liberty to do something, but maybe another brother or sister doesn't feel that liberty? Right? How do I interact with that brother or sister in community in a situation like that? Causes a lot of difficulties potentially, doesn't it? So he starts with things offered to idols. And immediately we say, how does that relate to me? I've never been to an idol temple. We've probably never even seen one, most of us. But the principle here is still true. What he's going to talk about is that in first century Corinth, the believers were saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. A church was planted, the church he's writing to, an assembly or church. Interchangeable words, right? And they were gathering together and the pagan temples, a lot of them have been rebuilt over there in Greece and parts of the Holy Land in, in uh, Jerasa for Jerash, they call it today in Jordan. They totally rebuilt the first century city in the Roman architecture of the time with all the temples. It's fascinating to see. The whole colonnade and, and the uh, piazza and everything, just like the Romans did it. They, they totally rebuilt it back. It was destroyed by earthquakes over the years. And all you got to do, if you want to know what Roman architecture looks like, look at our Pentagon. Look at the White House. Look at the House of Congress. They're all patterned after the same architecture. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? We're just an extension of Rome. But in these pagan temples, and, and in Jerash, I, I walked through the area there where, where you go into the pagan temple, and you would go into an assembly hall with a pagan shrine in the front, and you would worship the shrine, and they would have an animal sacrifice. And then they would take, it, it was basically a cookout. Can you relate to that? I mean, we, we grew up with cookouts on the, up in Massachusetts with my mom's family, and it was always fun, a cookout. You know, everybody came together, and you'd make hot dogs and hamburgers. And Well, this was their way of doing it. It was a festival with food. But they attached it to pagan idolatrous worship too, right? And then there would be meat left over, and they weren't going to waste it. So out the side door... They would have the meat market. They called it, Paul called it the shambles, right? Right along the side of the temple. And they've rebuilt that with the tables and everything. And they'd have the meat out there. And you could avoid the assembly part of it and just come around from the, from the city, come into the meat market and buy meat. But it was meat that had been offered to an idol. <laughs> now, the sister's already shaking her head. I wouldn't have that. But, but it, was, it was on an economy special price, sister. And, and, you know, it was a lot cheaper than going down to buy it at Costco even. And so they would, they would go there to get it. And, of course, that money was used to fund the pagan temple. Well, this was the 
situation they found themselves in. And the question is, some of those believers in Corinth were saved out of that pagan idolatrous worship. In fact, maybe attended that shrine. And now they're saved and they say, well, I don't want to go near there. That was my old life, right? But others who were saved had been going to that same shrine. They understood from the Bible that 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 idol doesn't mean anything. It's useless. And so going into that shrine or not, a building isn't going to change you, isn't going to defile you. It's what you put in your head that defiles you, right? It's not what comes out of the mouth, what goes in, right? Or not what goes in, it's what comes out. It's what our Lord said in Matthew 15. And so it's what's in the heart, what affects that. So Paul is going to address this. If someone goes into that shrine in order to get meat to use, does that defile them? Are they free to do that? Okay, let's bring it forward. Is a Christian free to go to a concert? Oh, now we're getting into the touchy areas, right? This is what they were... But that's why you would make it relevant to our culture. Is a Christian free to go to a movie house? You go to a movie house and another Christian who's a new believer and is weak in the faith and they see you in there, what are they going to think? They're going to think maybe that you've gone back to your old life? Is a Christian free to wear certain types of clothing that the world wears, right? All of those are very practical questions. This is what Paul is dealing with here. The principles are the same. And you see why? Do you agree with me? This is really important for us to get along with each other and not to be critical, judgmental. Now let me just tell you first of all, we'll move into it, but in this whole area, this is there's a spectrum. Okay, you know what a spectrum is? You've got one thing on one end and one thing at the other, and there's a whole range in between. On one end, you've got licentiousness, right? Looseness. I can do whatever I want, right? And on the other end, you've got legalism. And legalist, a legalist puts up all kinds of barriers additional to the Bible. Because they're so afraid they're going to do something wrong that they add things to the Bible to protect against. This is what the Pharisees did, right? Why they added all those extra laws in the Talmud. And in between, you know what the balance position is? It's a third word that starts with L. Love. Love is the balance position. We don't go to the extreme of licentiousness where we take advantage of grace and say, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm under grace. Well, you are under grace, but you can't do whatever you want because you're also under love. See? And love has to limit that liberty. That, re- that liberty's got to be restrained by love for one another and for the Lord. So the legalist is wrong and the one that's licentious is wrong. Both extremes are wrong. And it's interesting, the legalist, you know, the Bible will talk about, as he talks about here, those who have who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith, right? 
And if I was to ask for a show of hands, everybody would say, I'm, I'm the strong one, right? We all want to think we're the strong ones. And the legalist on this extreme would say, I'm the one that's strong in the faith. But you know what? Actually, he's totally opposite. The legalist is the one who's weak in the faith. Because if they understood grace, they wouldn't be a legalist. It's because they don't understand grace and they don't understand love that they fall into this legalism of adding all these rules and then they want to impose them on their brothers and sisters, which is wrong. That's not love. Those who are strong in the faith understand that we're under grace. And those who are strong in the faith usually aren't judgmental of their brethren because they give them room to grow. The legalist is critical, judgmental, always trying to find fault with others, trying to tear them down to the extent that sometimes hiding and watching to see, oh, oh, trying to catch a brother or sister in some area of wrong. Well, that, that whole idea is wrong, beloved, isn't it? Is that biblical love? He, he already gave a warning about that, tearing down the temple of God. That's what that's doing. You're tearing down your brethren. You're, you're hurting the Lord Jesus himself. He'll go so far to say because of our union with Christ that when we criticize and tear down our brethren, we're criticizing and tearing down Christ himself. And we're sinning against Christ. So it's an important matter, isn't it? So let's work through it. In the first couple of verses, he explains the situation here in, uh, in Corinth. Verses 1 through 6. There are certain things that we know. All right? Now concerning things offered to idols, we know, we believers know, that we all have knowledge. Here's the first principle. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up or edifies. This is very important for us who study diligently the Bible. God urges us in 2 Timothy 2.15 and other places to be diligent to study the Bible, which means we will grow in spiritual knowledge. Biblical knowledge is spiritual knowledge. But there's a danger there. And the danger is we get puffed up like a frog. And we begin to think we know so much. And we begin to look down on our brothers and sisters who don't know as much as we do. See? Puffs up means puffs up with pride. Knowledge does that. I have before me in my journal that I keep there, and maybe you want to draw this diagram, a pair of scales. It's easy to draw. You know, just one bar with a flat part and the scales, right? And in one scale is knowledge, truth, and the other scale is love and character. And they've got to be balanced evenly as possible. Okay? If you grow all in knowledge and not love, that's going to make you a proud, arrogant, judgmental type person. If you grow all in love and character without much knowledge, you're prone to error, right? Maybe involved in all kinds of social service and sharing and helping other people, but you're unbalanced because you're not doing according to biblical truth. 
And so you're vulnerable to error, false religion, all kinds of things. So you see how important that is to keep that scale balanced. Now, we're like we're, we're moving up and down like that all the time. We maybe we get to an even balance about five minutes a week or something. You know, I don't know. Some of you may do better than that. But it's always it's something we it's a continual struggle in the Christian life. And why one of the big dangers of seminary or Bible college. Bob Brown in Louisiana likes to brag about calling it cemetery. So, so I mean, he says it publicly, so I'll say what he says publicly. He calls it cemetery because he thinks it's death to go to a seminary. I think that's going a little too far. Myself, I think there can be training. But there is danger there. If you grow in just knowledge, all kinds of depths of knowledge of theology and the Greek and the Hebrew... And you're not balancing it with serving in love. You're going to be a very unbalanced Christian. So Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And then he adds this, this warning. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. This person that thinks he knows, this is a great verse for someone who thinks they know it all, that thinks they know all the details of theology, you don't know yet everything you, that you ought to know. You're a work in progress like the rest of us, right? We're all a work in progress. We all need to give each other room. We, we don't rush that kind of growth that God wants to see and we want to see, but God's gracious with us. We want Him to be gracious with everyone else too. Right? See what a relief that is? <laughs> if you're inclined to be God's spiritual policeman, a spiritual detective, going around trying to check out everybody else, you can, you can set that aside according to 1 Corinthians 8. Let God do it. Let God do it. Take care of your own self first. My experience has been in the years I've been in the church, those who are the spiritual detectives that are always trying to critique everybody else are those that are living a double life themselves. They haven't looked in their own heart. They've got all kinds of sin in their own heart, and they're hiding it. And they're living this outward thing, which is just hypocrisy, right? God sees through all of that. I found that to be a pattern. Not 100% of the time, but many of those that are critical, judgmental, legalistic are ones that are really living a secret life of sin. And they need to, where's that mirror? <laughs> they need that mirror, James says, to, to look at themselves when they're studying the Bible and stop criticizing everybody else in the meeting. All right? So Paul's very practical here. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Relationship. If you love God, it's because He knows you personally in an intimate way. It's the same word, Adam knew Eve. We know what that means. Well, God knows us like that. It's powerful, isn't it? Our Creator, to know us like that. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. It's nothing. It's just whatever it is. Stone, wood, whatever it's made out of, steel. <laughs> it's nothing. There's no power in it. 
because we know there's only one God. There's no God in that idol. The, the idolaters think that there's power in that idol. They think that there's a God in that idol. Those who are involved in tarot cards think that there's a God in the tarot cards that can guide them, right? Those who are involved in witchcraft think that there's a God in witchcraft that can help protect, guide, whatever, bring wisdom. But he says, we know that they're nothing at all. That there's no other God but one. We know that because we're born again Christians, right? And the Bible has taught us that by the Holy Spirit. For even if there are so-called gods with a small g, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, still are. I know we think we're more civilized than the Greeks of the first century, but there are all kinds of gods, small g, still in our life and in our world. Yet for us believers, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. I mentioned this last night, so it'll be repetitive to those that were we were with last night. But for those that weren't there, I was praying with Brother Burkle, and I'm going to give him credit for it because he's the one that, that said it. Praying with him the other night. And after he asked me to pray with him, and, and we prayed before closing out the night. And he, after he finished, he comes out sometimes with some of these marvelous insights, a lot of times. He said, you know, it's amazing. The important people, the powerful people, in quotes, in our world, you couldn't just walk up to and talk. You couldn't just walk up to Governor Romney and, and talk to him. There's all kinds of secret service around him and all kinds of entourage. You can't just walk up to the powerful people of our day, the corporate leaders or the political leaders, and ask them for something. Can you imagine doing that? But we can sit here and talk to the God of the universe, the king, ruler, creator of the universe, and he hears us. We were just sitting in a couple of chairs. We didn't go to a special temple. We didn't put on special garments. We didn't face east, west, north, south, or anything. And we're talking to the God of the universe. Don't forget that when we pray. It's a good reminder. That's who we're talking to. <laughs> the one who's all-powerful. Who can make nothing out of something and make something out of nothing. Just like that. He knows all the molecules. He knows all the atoms. He holds all the stars in place. knows them all by name. You know, they found that little piece of metal on Mars and they, oh, they were all excited, you know, and they, and they realized, oh, a piece of the rover fell off in the sand. That's what they think it is so far, but who knows? They're trying to find water up there to justify their evolutionary hypothesis. Anything to oppose God. That's the world we live in, right? But he says, there's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him. We live for Him in one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Validates that as God, Jesus Christ created the world. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, many other places tell us. John 1, and through whom we live. 
Because he came and died on the cross. Because he rose again. He's not in the tomb. Because he ascended to the Father's right hand. Because he sent the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us, on the day of Pentecost, right? And the, and the Holy Spirit working with the Scriptures who were written by men guided by the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, that we know the Gospel. And through the Gospel, we know the Son. And through Him, we live. Not we might live. Not we did live. We live. We still live. And we will live for all eternity. That's what eternal life means. If it's eternal life, I don't know how you lose it. I mean, there are some out there trying to teach that idea that there's a certain sin you can sin right before you die and you lose everything. Well, then they weren't born again in the first place, I guess. I mean, their problem is, is further back than the end of life. They're further, their problems with the beginning of life. You're born again. You're born again. You have a new life. You don't lose that. But then he shifts. So far, verses 1 through 6, this is what we know, right? There are certain things we know, knowledge. But now he begins to apply it in verse 7. In verses 7 to 13, the second half of the chapter, however, and he's going to deal with a new word here, the word conscience. Now, let me just say a few words about conscience before we move through that part of the text, because it's really important to understand. It's one of the marvelous instruments that God has given us. Is that 1208? Wow, what happened? Can I go a little further? This, this is the section I really wanted to get to, and I'm just now getting to it at the end of the hour. Conscience, part of being made in the image and likeness of God. God gave us, man and woman, conscience. All right? And everyone has a conscience. Every person born has a conscience. And how we handle our conscience is very, extremely important. Okay, we might look at some people and say, well, Hitler didn't have a conscience. Have you ever heard people say that? He couldn't have had a conscience. He did have a conscience. But it was a seared conscience. The Bible tells us what happened to Hitler. He seared his conscience. He had a conscience, but he had he so defiled it to the point where now good was evil and evil was good. You see, he had got it all twisted up. A seared conscience is one that's been like branded with a hot iron. All the nerve endings have been killed. It doesn't have any sensitivity to good and evil anymore. You know how we know that little babies have a conscience? Because I've seen that when they do wrong, you spank them and they listen, right? And when they do right, you reward them. Well, why are you doing that? You're acting on their conscience. They don't even know how to say a word yet. They haven't learned biblical truth. They can't explain the gospel. And yet they know that if they do this thing and they get punishment, then that's the thing to avoid. And if they do this thing and they're rewarded, then that's the thing to do more of, right? That's their conscience. We all have a conscience. 
And the biblical principle is, here in chapter 8, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and Romans 14, we must never encourage anyone, believer or unbeliever, to violate their conscience. And some of us have a weak conscience, which is hypersensitive to sin, and that's prone to legalism. And some of us have a strong conscience because we know more of the truth of the Word of God and we understand the liberty we have in Christ and we understand that there are certain things that we can do that won't hurt us as Christians, <coughs> although they might hurt someone who has a weak conscience. You with me? <coughs> so follow with me quickly. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, the knowledge you just talked about, for some, with consciousness of the idol, even until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So someone who's a genuine Christian, genuinely born again, they can't go into that temple because they really think that idol has power. Okay? And so if they go in there and eat meat offered to an idol, they think that idol is going to do something to them. Which is superstition, right? Which is lack of knowledge. We would call it ignorance. Which just means lack of knowledge. They're not taught yet. And so they... Their conscience is defiled. What do we do with a person like that? Supposing someone in this meeting was like that. How would we handle them? We're going to handle them in biblical love, he says. I'll have to summarize it. And maybe I'll, I was planning to go into chapter 9 tonight, so I'll finish out here chapter 8 tonight then, Lord willing. But if that person has a conscience that is weak and it's defiled, we don't want to encourage that defilement. So in biblical love, we will restrain our own liberty so as not to cause them to defile their conscience. So there are certain things that we have the right before the Lord to do as Christians, but we might restrain from doing them because we don't want to cause a brother or sister who has a weak conscience to go into sin and to weaken their conscience further. Let me just say quickly, one thing you have to be alert to, though, is the professional weaker brother. You, want to, you know what I'm referring to. And, and some of us have, been, have heard stories in churches of heavy-handed tyrant-type elders who can be professional weaker brothers and they're very legalistic. They always want to put all kinds of restraints up on everybody else. Maybe they need them, but they want to put them on everybody else, right? Maybe they're leaving a, living a secret life and that's why they need them. But you can't impose those on others necessarily. The professional weaker brother, what do you do? The professional weaker brother needs to be taught needs to be taught, all right? And that's a ministry of the elders. Sometimes the professional weaker brother, if he or she is causing problems in an assembly, needs to be disciplined even. They are not to be allowed to be a tyrant going around, bossing around other Christians 
in imposing their legalism on others. You can't allow that. Now, you do give them room to grow at first, right? You don't do that right away with them. But I'm talking a professional means after 10 or 15 years, they're still where they were before. So they're not cooperating. They're not trying to grow. They're not even trying to read the Scriptures and learn them, right? They're stuck in this one thing. And oftentimes it becomes a hobby horse that you know every time they get up to speak, it's going to be about that, right? So that the Bible tells us how to deal with that. But for those of us who are saved and love the Lord and love one another, we want to be careful not to cause our brethren to stumble, but rather always be careful to build them up. So we want to be sensitive to edify. We want to be sensitive to build them up. And that may mean a little bit of discomfort for us or a little bit of, you know, putting restraints on ourselves when we know we don't need to be restrained because we have liberty in that area. But if we're causing a brother or sister to stumble, that's an offense to Christ. Paul will say, that's a person for whom Christ died. You may not love him, but Christ loves him a lot. So for the sake, if you don't love him, and I hope we do, for the sake of Christ's love for every child of his, we need to be sensitive not to offend. But we'll talk some more about that tonight because what the Apostle Paul is going to do into me in a, a majestic way in chapter 9 is move right into his own example. <laughs> he, you know, he was never a theoretician. It's easy to talk real theoretically about these things and not be practical. Paul says, you know what? I'm, what I'm telling you to do, I do myself. And we're going to move into the whole area of self-denial and how Paul is an example of that. So let's close in prayer. Thanks. Sorry for... Uh, I just... I don't know. Do the clocks go faster down here? Maybe it's because of the being close to the equator or something. I don't know. So thank you, O Lord, for your word and for your saints, every one of them. Thank you for the people gathered here, and thank you for those who are away traveling. We value every one of them. Thank you for those that are here. Thank you for those that are sick and not able to be out, or maybe are weak or just tired. We are receiving of all of them in the Lord because you love them and we love them because you're working through us by your Spirit. Help us to be sensitive, Lord. We, we get so preoccupied with our own rights and, and what we want to do, and we forget how we might offend or hurt others. There's been too much of that in the history of the church. Start with us, if we're not doing it already, and helping us to be sensitive to each one, giving each other room to grow, loving each other unto the great example that you set before us, the Lord Jesus, being conformed to his great character. And we'll give you the praise and the glory and the thanksgiving as we go, go with us in peace, protect us on the roads. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name, amen.